0: Primary Care Knowledge Boost, Management of Diabetes in Primary Care. Hello and welcome to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Today we are back with Marlon and Nikki um, to talk a bit about the management of diabetes in primary care.
1: Yeah and as we introduced them last week you'll hear them introducing themselves again. Dr Marlon Morris is a GP with a specialist interest in diabetes and Nicola Milne is a diabetic nurse specialist and has lots of different hats to do with diabetes. So they're, they're both fabulous speakers about this topic and very passionate.
0: Yeah. Um, so today we um, we cover a bit of a holistic view about how you um, review people with diabetes in general practice and talk about um, what we can do for our type 1 and type 2 diabetic patients
1: We then go on to talk more specifically about treatment options for diabetes Um, we focus first on type 1 diabetes briefly about tips for insulin treatment and then we go on to talk about the new NICE guidelines in type 2 diabetes uh, and how to sift through the treatment options which is really useful and some really good resources as well.
0: Yeah it was fab um, and then we also um, cover a little bit about the um, non-medication options around diet and exercise um, and particularly talk about the low calorie diet pilots um, that are happening across the country one of which um, is in the Greater Manchester area. Yep. We hope you enjoy.
1: So thank you both so much for coming on again to talk to us um, can you both introduce yourselves again for the listeners who might not have listened to our first episode?
2: Hi, I'm Marlon Marais. I'm a GP with an interest in diabetes. I'm a diabetes lead for Manchester CCG and I work as a diabetes with an interest in, in diabetes and I work as a GP in Tameside and Manchester.
3: Hi, and uh, thank you very much for inviting me again. My name is Nikki Milne. Um, I'm currently a diabetes support lead across the Brooklands and Northern Northerndon Primary Care Network. My background is as a diabetes specialist nurse. I'm on the Primary Care Diabetes Society Committee, a Diabetes UK clinical champion and a tutor on the Diabetes Diploma course at Warwick University.
1: Amazing. Yeah, these are good credentials, as we said before. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we're talking today all about the management of diabetes. Um, So if we start with kind of getting somebody in um, to review them. So how do you review somebody with diabetes? Just a a broad overview to kind of get us orientated, if if you wouldn't mind.
3: I think these days now it's very much, you know, there's a lot of HCA-led care and, and, and nurse-led care or, um, around um, diabetes and also pharmacists, so dieticians. So um, certainly across the PCNs, we're using the whole multidisciplinary team, aren't we, which is really, really important. But I think often people think of a diabetes review as looking at glycemia. Um, And it's all about HbA1c. And that's what we're really focusing in on. But I think we touched sort of in the the last time we met, that actually 50% of people with diabetes will have a cardiovascular event. And that's one of the biggest side effects of having diabetes. So when we're doing a review that, you know, the first thing we should always look at is blood pressure, then cholesterol. Then probably the HBA1C. And I know we'll go on to talk about HBA1C more today. But then other vital things, you know, the foot check, the um, ensuring that retinopathy screenings happened, um, looking for any issues with male or female sexual dysfunction. And you've also got the renal, so making sure that microalbumin's done, it's the one thing nationally that we don't do very well, and yet it's the first warning sign that there might be any issues um, with the kidneys. Um, the blood test for the EGFR as well and then I think what is really crucial at the moment as well is where we're coming out of lockdown it's it's reviewing people's mental and emotional well-being Um, it's a huge thing we've had that isolation we've had that loneliness people have missed the reviews people have got anxiety diabetes distress and very often will not fix anything around somebody's diabetes until they're feeling mentally and emotionally well if I had a fairy godmother that would um, come down and work in my team it would be that we would get a a psychologist to help us with a lot of the diabetes care there's that massive interlink isn't there between diabetes and emotional distress and that bi-directional link Um, and two-thirds of people with diabetes say that they often feel down or distressed about the diabetes and yet less than 25% of people with diabetes say that they get asked about this in the consultations, and there's um, a fabulous uh, module at the moment on the Diabetes UK website for all healthcare professionals um, about how to better interact around this area. Um, and I would encourage anybody to do that, and it's uh, good for your CPD as well. So, um, but for me, it's that holistic approach to managing diabetes that's really important.
1: Such good points.
2: On a practical point of view, can I just remind people? If you're doing an ACR, and one of the reasons why we've been so poor at doing ACR is because we've been worried about getting that first urine of the day to get the accurate ACR. And therefore, we've been giving them pots and telling them to bring them in with us and then they're forgetting and then they're like, I'll bring it back on again and, and, and so on. If you've got them in with the clinic on you and they've not collected your urine samples, get a random ACR from them and then that gives you a good enough viewpoint. If that's abnormal, then repeat it with a early morning ACR. As a practical point, when you start doing that, you'll see your numbers of ACRs that you're doing in surgery going up significantly.
1: Such good points. And then thinking about um, what we can do for our type 1 and type 2 diabetic patients, what do you think, how can we help them? Big question. (laughs) Where do you start?
3: Yeah, so yeah, I think the, the main thing is it's it's empowerment, isn't it? And again, if COVID's shown as anything, um, I think the statistics are that pre-COVID, on average, somebody might spend three hours a year with the healthcare provider. And I think that's quite generous, actually, because um, for some people that are managing their diabetes well and and, and meeting their individualised targets, we might not see them for three hours. It might be just a, a one-hour, rev- you know, a half-hour review in a year. So we have got to empower people more to be able to self-manage. So for type 2 diabetes, it's encouraging people to do education and to engage with that so that they're empowered for that shared decision-making, that they're able to um, manage the diabetes well and make appropriate lifestyle adjustments where required. And certainly at the moment, the the big thing for people living with type 1 diabetes is around technologies. So we've had such a leap forward with that. And you'll often find in your surgeries, and we kind of call it the lost tribe, really, because we've got a lot of people with type 1 diabetes who, for one reason or another, are no longer attending secondary care. And yet now, um, under specialist teams, the new NICE guidance, everybody with type 1 diabetes are now entitled to flash glucose monitoring or continuous glucose monitoring. You know, we've got pump technology. We've now got closed-loop technology so really it's about having those conversations if there's people with type 1 diabetes that have fallen out of that um, going to see secondary care then then it's, it's about talking about the merits of re-engaging and the technologies that are available brilliant
0: and in terms of if we start with type 1 diabetes um, in primary care do you have any kind of top tips about going around managing the specifics about insulin medication rather than the wider um, holistic bits that we've touched on there?
3: Yeah, so I think with insulin, and it, and and of course, this will also extend to people with type 2 diabetes, because in certain studies which have been done through Leicester University, it shows that up to 70% of people with type 2 diabetes will eventually need insulin on the diabetes journeys as well. So... Um, For insulin management, um, I would certainly um, signpost people to the Diabetes on the Net. So the Primary Care Diabetes Society, we've produced a six steps to insulin safety module. And it's designed by primary care for primary care. It's free to access and it's RCGP and RCN accredited. Um, And you might say, well, actually, I'm not putting people on insulin. I'm not adjusting people's insulin doses. But in primary care, we're often signing for repeat prescriptions and things like that. So anybody that's got that um, involvement with insulin, it really is vital because one of the, the most common medication errors is around insulin. And we know that those errors can have massive consequences. So um, very important that if you're doing anything around insulin, that you've got the right competences to do that.
2: And the other thing I'll add on is work well with your pharmacy teams for your medication reviews with your patients in type one and type two with insulin to work out how much insulin you need to give someone It'd be quite a good audit for a lot of practices to do. Cause some people will end up, you go in the in, visit them. They've got fridges full of insulin because they're literally only using two or three units of insulin a day. And that's all they're needing. And you're sending them five pens a mm-hmm. month. So, um, that can be a really good audit for you to do, to just do a, an insulin use audit. And your pharmacy team are really good at doing this in the medication reviews um, with the patients to make sure. And conversely, unfortunately, sometimes you get patients running out of insulin because they're not being given enough insulin. So make sure that, you know, you're just, just, just getting the right amount of insulin and the right type of insulin. So pumps is fast acting insulin. And if they're not on pumps, then they will need um, there's slow acting, um, and, and short acting insulin. Um, but if they're on the pump, my tip is in primary care as well, make sure they've got that backup prescription always valid just in case that pump fails. So if they are on a pump and they're asking you for, um, a long acting insulin, give it them mm. because it means that it's just, it's just running out of date and they just need it. Um, so, so just, just a few tips just to bear in mind for your type one patients.
3: Yeah, and don't forget those pumps always break down on that Friday on a bank holiday weekend, Marlon. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> so, true. Um, yeah, when they can't get through to the GP practice for, for the, their insulin. And it's the same as well. So, people that are on Freestyle Libra or continuous glucose monitoring, they will still need access to testing strips and blood glucose testing and ketone testing strips as well. So, often people will go, Well, you've got the flash now. So, why do you need it? But if you're using a flash technology, in times it's got like about a five-minute time lag. So um, in times where your blood glucose levels might be rapidly declining or escalating, it's always very important to back that up with um, blood glucose testing. And HGV drivers, so our group two drivers, still need access to uh, testing strips as well. And another really important area where we're we're looking at insulin is go back to basics about whether that insulin injection technique is right. Look for those um, areas of lipohypertrophy as well, um, the injection sites. So time and time again, you find people are injecting after meals. um, They're going into lumpy injection sites. They're not changing the needles every time. Look at another useful audit as well is you know, what size of needles are people using? They shouldn't really be using anything more than a four or a five millimeter needle, possibly a six in the extreme. So I still come across people on 12 millimeter needles. They're going to be more at risk of having hyperglycemia and doing intramuscular injections. Um, Trend Diabetes, um, which is a, a group of diabetes specialist nurses, they've got a lot of really good resources around, you know, good injection technique and and so forth. So those are all a very good um, resource to use as well. And
0: then moving on to the um, other things that are used for type two diabetes, it feels like there's a million different types of uh, medication out there at the moment that can be prescribed. Um, Would you be able to talk us through the latest um, NICE diabetes treatment pathway um, and just highlighting um, the important bits that we need to know about? um, Any top tips about any of the particular medications that you think is important to get across?
2: So, yeah,
0: so I'll just make a couple of points
2: on this and hand over to Nikki. If you've not seen the infographics for this, click on them. This is one of the best user-friendly NICE guidance infographics I've ever seen. Um, It's really easy to follow. And the key thing is... Make sure um, when you're doing your diabetes assessment on your patients that you're doing your Q risk, you're doing your cardiovascular risk. So then it allows you to see what side of the diagram you're going to then fall in for your medications for the patients. Um, So that's just a couple of tips about about using that.
3: Yeah, so like you say, Marlon, it's it's been quite a big step change, hasn't it? And actually, I was part of the NICE Guidance Committee for these um, guidelines. And the scope was to look at the cardiovascular outcome trials. So we spoke before, didn't we, about 50% of people with diabetes having a cardiovascular event. Um, so when you look at the cardiovascular outcome trials for the SGLT two inhibitors, um, most of them are very favourable in terms of um, cardio protection and reduction in incidence of heart failure and hospitalisation for heart failure. So as Marlon says, it's vital now that we do a Q risk because. Nice is in those guidelines, you know, certainly diet and lifestyle for type 2 diabetes remains that bedrock. That's really important. And metformin still stays in position one as the first medication that you're going to use. And if somebody has any intolerability to normal metformin, then you'd use the modified release. But after that, then it is based on Q risk. So for anybody with a Q risk less than 10%, they're suggesting that you can look at Um, any of the agents, oral agents, so SGLT2s, DPP4 inhibitors, pyoglitazones, sulfonylureas. But where that Q risk is above 10%, so in our high-risk population, which Admittedly, is is the vast majority of our people with diabetes, it's unusual to have a Q risk under 10%. You would then be literally after the metformin, they say as soon as they're tolerating the metformin, you'd be putting that SGLT2 inhibitor in, and it's one with proven cardiovascular benefit. So that's quite a difference because before you'd maybe do the metformin, up titrate it, wait three months and only put the SGLT2 in if they weren't reaching target level, whereas now they're saying put it in for that uh, cardiovascular benefit. And that's very difficult, isn't it? Because we were saying before that six out of 10 people newly diagnosed with type 2 diabetes might not be having any symptoms So somebody's sat in front of you with no symptoms and you're putting metformin in, then after once they're tolerating the full dose, you're putting in an SGLT2. And you're probably also putting them on a statin if the Q risk is over 10% and possibly they're going to need some Ramapril as well. It's a lot of medications for somebody to have all of a sudden when they've got no symptoms. So that's that underlying need for the education around why we're doing that and why it's important. And then if somebody has got established cardiovascular disease, which includes heart failure, previous MI and peripheral artery disease as well, then you're putting that SGLT2 in in the same way that you would if the QRIS was over 10%. So quite a stepwise change in the guidance from NICE there. Um, and anything particular about any of the specific medications that you
0: think it's worth highlighting to listeners? Any quirks of them, or um, anything that's important
3: to tell patients about? Well, certainly the SGLT 2s because we we know that there are cases of euglycemic, so that's normal blood glucose levels or relatively normal blood glucose levels, and DKA with type um, with type two, and that we well, you know we've never. Unless we're looking at ketosis prone or flatbush diabetes, we, we don't normally get uh, DKA with type 2. But the problem is is that this DKA, if somebody's using an SGLT2 inhibitor in type 2 diabetes, it will often come on during periods of stress and illness. So, you know, somebody may get a chest infection, somebody may have COVID, and then their blood sugars look relatively normal. But if you tested them to ketones, that would be positive. Now, as a a diabetes specialist, Marlon would probably be very aware of this in his surgery if he was seeing that person with the chest infection. But our, our colleagues that are more generalists might not be aware of it and might, you know, they might say, what, your blood glucose levels? And they might say 12. And you think, well, that's fine, but we need to be getting that message across to all our colleagues that if you've got somebody presenting that's that's unwell with dehydration with type 2 diabetes on an SGLT2 inhibitor that we need to be checking for DKA and actually going back further we need to be educating the people with diabetes that when they become unwell with a dehydrating illness that they need to stop the SGLT2 they need to stop it before any planned surgery but it's difficult again getting people to remember that information when we have given it so um, So yeah, there are certain things with the SGLT2 inhibitors, making sure people keep hydrated, um, asking them not to go on ketogenic diets without telling us, Marlon was saying, wasn't he, in the last podcast, how people can drift off onto some some of the extreme diets. And of course, if you're going to go on a ketogenic diet, that's going to give us concerns. There's a very good um, publication that's got like a traffic light system for instances where you might not use an SGLT2 inhibitor. That's, a a very handy resource we can link to that that's fab
2: so um yeah so talking about um metformin obviously the key thing to bear in mind it's been mentioned before gastric symptoms is the most common side effect to metformin so if someone is having gastric symptoms bloating diarrhea feeling sick then switch them over to the sustained release formulation And if they still have it, they can't tolerate metformin and move them on to something else. So that's a key thing to bear in mind. Metformin is a weight loss agent for diabetes. So the other agent that helps you to lose weight whilst you have diabetes is an SGLT2 inhibitor. The other key point that I like to tell patients when they're starting this, because a lot of the patients starting these have high blood sugars, they work by making your proximal tubules release more sugar into the urine and not re them back into the bloodstream. If you have a lot of blood sugar, there's got to be a lot of sugar in the urine, and you get this slight splashback, which means that you have an ideal environment for mitotic organisms to cause infections in the groin areas. For some patients, that's enough to make them stop the treatment. So I always warn them about it when they're taking them, and I make it quite clear, so I'm just like, when you're starting this medication, make sure that you drink plenty, make sure that you stop it if you're unwell, if you're having vomiting or diarrhea and periods of, of surgery, and also when you're starting it, if you develop any rashes in the groin area get back in touch with us uh, because you may need treatment for that or if it's a patient that I know really well I'm like if you get a red rash in your groin area go to the chemist and get yourself some caniston and start using that straight away um, because that should help to clear that up for you but in the patients where you leave it that can get really quite bad um, so um, just make sure you you warn them about it and, and I wouldn't use them in patients who are known to have a lot of UTIs because of the same reasons. Lots of glucose in the urine. So theoretically, when they did the initial trials in them, they did see a, a modest increase in UTIs in patients with SGLT2 inhibitors. So if you've got someone who's got diabetes and you're treating them for recurrent UTI, you either would cover this through other ways and start them on the SGLT2 inhibitors because there's a number of reasons why you want them to have that treatment Um, such as high CBD risk or or, or CKD or heart failure. Um, But if there's another alternative, avoid it in those patients. So that's another agent which helps you to lose weight. And the third agent which helps you to lose weight with diabetes is a GLP-1. These are mainly injections, but there's one oral preparation. The oral preparation is relatively new onto the market. And it has to be taken at more or less the same time each day. So it's best used for patients who you know have set routines and will remember to take it at the same same time each day, empty stomach and and so on as well. Whereas the injections are a lot easier to use. And um, generally speaking, most patients take a once weekly injection. Of these GLP 1 medications. They work on the incretin effect. So um, it means that the person has reduced appetite. They can get nausea when they start them. And a key tip for these is tell them that they're going to get nausea when they start them, and it will last for up to six to eight weeks. After that, it generally tends to go. So I make sure that I tell them, I'm going to give you this injection. There's a high chance for six to eight weeks, you're going to feel very sick. However, it will go. Many people really appreciate that because they know what they're letting themselves in for and it's not permanent. Yeah. If someone really doesn't want the sound of that, then don't give them the medication. So it's again, it's having that discussion with them around the options that are, that are there for them. Weight neutral is DPP4, which works on a similar pathway to the GLP-1s. There's not much um, really to know about that apart from you have to give them the right Dose per EGFR. So, and where the people make mistakes sometimes is they see that the HbA1c is just slightly up. So they think, oh, well, I'll just give them a little bit of citagliptin. I'll just give them 25 milligrams. There's absolutely no point. If the person has a normal EGFR, you give them the, the dose for their EGFR. Right. The doses are not based per their HbA1c. And no one's ever got to remember all of these. I look in the BNF. The only one which is completely separate is linagliptin. Linagliptin is excreted entirely in the liver. So you can use this down to any EGFR, including on dialysis. So if you have someone who's having a swinging EGFR, you're doing it one month, it's 35. You're doing it the next month, it's 25. And they keep swinging up and down. I always use linagliptin in those because you're not having to keep constantly changing the dose of the of the uh, dpp4 that you give them they don't give you hypos um, they're generally not quite as potent as some of the agents um, but that's a good tip for those Pioglitazone fell really out of fashion um, due to the risks around heart failure bladder cancer so key thing if you've got someone who has hematuria don't give them pyo um, if they are completely clear of that there's no link between pioglitazone and bladder cancer. It's been proven on a number of studies since the original rosiglitazone scandal. So that's something to bear in mind. But if someone has heart failure, don't touch it. And if someone has um, high weight, it is something that makes you gain weight. Mm. It is a treatment option, which is worth bearing in mind. If someone doesn't want an injection, they still want another tablet, we can bear it in mind still. And the other one to bear in mind is a sulfonylurea, so this is something which puts weight on and can give you hypos. It's not the most ideal thing for someone who has marked renal um, problems. Um, if you're providing them with a sulfonylurea, provide them with a blood glucose monitor as well. And um, that's a thing that I see sometimes when I've been low in practices before Of how many people don't get given a blood glucose monitor when they'll be given a sulfonylurea. A hypo from a sulfonylurea is longer and deeper quite often than the hypo from insulin. Mm. So someone who's admitted to hospital with an insulin hypo is often out the same day. Someone with a sulfonylurea, because of the length of action of the medication and the potency of it, that can be that they're not coming out for one or two days. So be very careful in who you're choosing to give that sulfonylurea to. A, a little elderly um, patient who lives on their own, who d- you're not really sure when they're eating their meals, is not a good option for that person. However, they are extremely potent. So if a person has a really high blood glucose levels, and you want to get them down very quickly, and they don't want insulin, you use a sulfonylurea. hmm
0: Excellent. Very rapid, but great overview of all of the (laughs) medications. I'm very impressed. (laughs) Um, I wanted to ask about um, second and third line agents. So obviously all of the same information applies and there's, there is information in the nice pathway, but have you got any advice about making that decision about moving on to adding in second and third line and when to stop um, medications and try something else?
2: Yeah. So one of the key things you, I like to look at is if someone is getting worse and they're on a current medication. And this is particularly true for sulfonylureas. You can get something called secondary sulfonylurea failure. So it's basically because your sulfonylurea is increasing the production of insulin from your pancreas, that can eventually tire out. So when that's failed, what you want to do is you want to stop it. There's no point continuing it. If they're on another agent and everything's just increasing up, It could just be that the diabetes is progressing. So there's an argument for keeping them on that agent. Um, But most of the time, if something isn't working, stop it is the key message, Um, particularly with the sulfonylurea, though. If it's not working, just stop it. When you're talking about second and third line agents, um, so you've got your NICE guidance, you've looked at the um, CVD risk, and then you're looking at your next agents. I like to look at the weight profile. And if there's any other positive things for that, and any other indications, and you can actually have a discussion with them about different things. So if someone is particularly underweight, then you can actually use one of the agents, which may put a bit of weight on if they don't want injections. So that's worth bearing in mind. If they're particularly overweight, that's a good time to introduce something like a GLP-1, which can actually help them to lose weight. So the third agent and the second and the third agent, you will often look to see around the the holistic approach of the patient and add the thing that's the most suited for them. Bearing in mind, SGLT2 inhibitors are also licensed for people with CKD and with heart failure. So if they're not already on those agents and you know that the person has a diagnosis of either of these two things, then you can add them but a key point to bear in mind about an SGLT2 inhibitor for this is it's not thought to be effective for glucose control below an EGFR of 45, but you can still use it to protect the kidneys and provide symptomatic relief in the heart failure.
1: These are SGLT2 inhibitors. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's really interesting. So you can keep them on because they'll be protective of the heart and kidneys, but not necessarily doing much for the diabetes.
2: Exactly. And what they tend to do is they do tend to try and titrate that dose up to, the, to as good a level as you can for them and then, and then leave them on those.
1: Yeah, perfect. And then the NHS recently released the low-calorie diet pilots. Um, and you talked a little bit about that in the first episode on uh, diagnosis. Can you talk us through all the dietary side of things with diabetes?
2: So this is the thing where people get most scared quite often with, with <laughs> diabetes. And what advice should I be giving to a patient in terms of what they should yeah. be eating and what they shouldn't be eating? What's good food? Should they be having diabetic jam all of a sudden? Um So the old mantra is there's no such thing as bad food. It's just the wrong amounts of the same type of food. Um, You want to reduce the amount of carbohydrates in the diet. There's been a long history and a long list of papers that have been done around low carbohydrate diets as a treatment for diabetes bearing in mind we're only on a hundred years now since insulin has been around. So low um, carbohydrate diets have been used for um, as a treatment for diabetes for a, a while. And you want the person to reduce their carbohydrate load. And I always like to tell the patient that when you're looking at carbohydrates, they go, I'll cut the sugar out of my tea. But and so, yes, but also bear in mind, we have slow carbohydrates and we have fast carbohydrates and it's a slow carbohydrates that most people, in my experience, are not as familiar with. So that's your breads, your pastas, your potatoes, your rices. These are the ones where people are often not realizing how much of this is then converted into sugar um, once it goes through the digestive tract. So um, there are some resources out there, the diagrams and so on. It's available on the Diabetes UK website of a typical plate. And what a lot of people do is they have a plate which is half and half half protein and half carbohydrate and that's a typical meat and two veg and, and, and that's where, where we are what we need to try and do is do it into thirds so we have the carbohydrate load reduced to a third of us plate and often a tip is to get them to get smaller plates you get a protein section often increased to the third because not always it's a third the protein amount and then the third is often things like vegetables and salads. So someone's not going hungry because they're having um, a full plate of food. the vegetables there, there's salads there, but you're reducing that carbohydrate load and If you can stick to those, that's really just basic advice. But at the time of diagnosis, you refer someone to a diabetes education program and they will go through all of these things with this. So, um, you know, that's a key point if you can try and encourage the patients to attend those. But if they can't reduce that carbohydrate load. Now, interestingly, in Newcastle, in this country, they did a study. It was the primary care driven study where they had patients who'd had diabetes for less than six years, and a uh, raised BMI, and it was type 2 diabetes, I should state. And they thought, what will happen if we put them on a low-calorie diet for a period of three months or so, and see what happens to their diabetes after this? The results of this trial was so good, in that so many people reduce the amount of medication that they needed or ended up actually in full remission of their type 2 diabetes because they lost that much weight that the nhs england low calorie diet pilot was started on the back of this study and a number of subsequent follow-up studies which has had similar results so there's a national program and you're based in wigan i'm based in manchester GM is part of this pilot. It's also running in West Yorkshire and parts of London and a few other parts of the country are coming on board with this, but it's currently live in GM. If you have a patient who has type 2 diabetes of a duration of less than six years, a HbA1c of 85 or below, CKD less than four, and no active cancer, no advanced heart failure, um, and not on insulin and a few other small exclusion criteria, um, which you can see from the form that's on pretty much on most systems in GM. It's been u- uploaded onto most of the um, referral systems in GM. And that patient is eligible to be referred into the low calorie diet program. This is a 12 week, 800 calorie a day program. So a patient is given an 800 calorie a day diet which is controlled for them because they're given it they're given the shakes they're given the soups um, for 12 weeks and then after this their normal food is reintroduced with them with support what has been seen is most people have ended up losing more than seven to ten kilograms and what you saw in the trials before this was that interestingly when most people lost five kilograms and above you started to see reduction in the HPA1Cs. So what what we're seeing for this is a number of people gaining full remission, but a vast number of people managing to reduce the actual cost of the drug burden. So both for the NHS cost and for the person having to take all of these tablets every day um, once they've finished that program. So it's not just a diet, there's life coaching. um, There's um, psychological inputs around this as well to try and make this as successful as possible. And NHS England have rolled this out. And this is what was in the press as a diabetes wonder diet. But the caveat is, if a person has had diabetes for 10 years, they are not likely to be successful on the diet. So it's for all of those six years and below.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I was going to ask, is there much evidence about how sustained the remission is or the um the improvement um in um their their diabetes
2: yeah so um when they've done the follow-up studies they have seen that a number of the ones that gained remissions remained in remission and i think it was over 50 percent of them so it's still a significant number of them were remaining in remission um from that as well um but it's a relatively new thing so we don't have very very long-term data um so how long the sustainability of it is long-term they're still following up but initially it's been shown to be quite good actually in that they've still remained off a number of medications and a number of them um over 50 have remained in remission um which if you can think about if this is taken at scale because obviously that's why nhs are doing this if you can get a few of the million people with diabetes in the country to reduce the amount of medication, even if they're only on metformin and you manage to reduce their metformin prescription down to nothing, then you're looking at a saving of, granted metformin is only a few pounds, but 20 odd pounds per person. But if you times that by a million, that's a huge saving for the NHS. So that's why they're they're deciding to invest in this quite heavily.
1: It's coming full circle a bit in terms of, there's so many options for it. We've always known that diet and exercise are really good,
2: but it's just kind of how to put your resources into that as well. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously I've spoken a lot about all the different medications and so on. Some of these medications, 50 pounds a month, 60 pounds a month, metformin, yeah, cheapest chips, a couple of pounds a month, but diet and exercise advice is free, um, which can make a significant impact on that patient's longevity with their diabetes control. And bearing in mind, sometimes if you get hold of someone and get this advice into them and get them on the right pathway, I have had some patients who have come off the medication and are controlling it only with their diet, and they know exactly how to do that because they've had the right level of advice. So we talk about the medicines and medicines are really interesting, but diet and lifestyle are a key point to the control of type 2 diabetes.
0: Brilliant. You've highlighted um, both quite a lot of um, excellent resources as we've gone along here, but I'm just thinking particularly because we haven't covered things like diabetic emergency management or managing intercurrent illness, is there any other good resources that we can highlight to listeners to go and look away at that?
2: I would encourage everyone to make sure they have downloaded a copy of the Leicester Sick Day Rules for Type 1 and Type 2 Diabetes and they do them for people on insulin and off insulin as well. If you've got someone who you are wanting to keep hold of in primary care, and you don't feel that you, they need to be fully admitted into secondary care. And it's particularly useful for when you've got someone and you're doing an out of hours GP shift and you've got a call coming in and the person's on the phone. These are what my blood sugars are doing and I'm unwell and so on. And you don't know what to do. Refer to the Leicester sick day rules. They literally lay it out. If your blood sugar readings are between this amount and this amount and you're on insulin, consider giving this much extra insulin and testing this much more frequently and so on. They're literally that descriptive. Mm, So um, I would highly recommend that everyone make sure that they have a copy of those.
1: Thanks so much. Any final take home points for the listeners?
3: Yes, yeah, so I think my learning point about treatment is use all the resources that are at hand. I think one of the difficulties is, is it's amazing now. we've got so many different resources. When I first started doing diabetes, it was quite easy because you did metformin, you did glyclozide, and if that didn't work, you sent them to hospital for insulin. So it was this very simple pathway. I'm, I'm showing my age now. Um, and it, but it's fantastic that we've got remission pilots, we've got SGLT2s, we've got GLP1s, all these new medications and options before us. But sometimes I think that actually causes inertia because there's too much choice. So in a really busy clinic, you're thinking, I'm not quite sure which one and which level of EGFR is, does this have to be and which is the best one if they've also got heart failure and things like that. So there's lots of resources around and have them in little handy formats in your top drawer and laminated um, and then you can look at them. There's some very good resources in the uh, Journal of Diabetes and Primary Care and they do these at-a-glance fact sheets and they do this series called How To as well. And certainly there's an at-a-glance fact sheet for the SGLT2 inhibitors and what the different licensings are and levels of EGFR depending on um, what you, you're using them for because they're now very strong for heart failure and for for CKD and renal protection as well. So um, so use your resources and um, and just really try and avoid that inertia because you get tempted to say, well, just give it another three months and come back and we'll see where we are. And we haven't got that time when people's um, HbA1Cs aren't at their individualised targets.
2: So my key point is, if someone is freshly diagnosed, quite engaged, are not on insulin, or you're able to wean them off the insulin, consider them at the moment for the low calorie diet. It may mean that that person is able to gain remission from the diabetes or a vast reduction in the amount of medication they need for the diabetes. It's sanctioned by NHS England. They've paid for the places. They're sat there waiting for people to go on them. And currently in primary care, we are underusing this resource. Next thing being diet and exercise cost us nothing as a health system, but can give the patient a world of empowerment to control their diabetes. Sometimes you may even do things like giving them a blood glucose meter at various points so they can see what different meals do to their blood sugars. And I've done that with patients before. So then they know, I know when I eat this, this is what happens. So I'll only eat that once a month. And I've done that quite a lot of times when people are initially diagnosed. We're trying to see what's going on. We're trying to see what's going on with their blood sugars. I've given them a blood glucose meter. We found out what's working. And then after that, we take the blood glucose meter off them because they don't need to keep using the blood glucose meter because they're fully aware of what's going to happen when they eat certain things. So diet and exercise free, remission diet, low-calorie diet free. And my third point being, when you're deciding on medication with the patient, speak to them, and look at them. So see what the characteristic of the patient is and what they would actually be willing to take. There's no point prescribing a £60 a month injection to someone who refuses to inject themselves. All you'll be doing is constantly giving them an injection which they constantly put in the bin. So um, that's that's a key thing. So engage the patient in that, but you can tell them the advantages and disadvantages around the different treatments.
0: Thank you both so much for today and coming back and chatting to us all about the management of this time of diabetes. It's been um, really, really interesting again.
2: Thanks for having me. Um, it's been a pleasure to be here.
1: So yeah, it was amazing to talk to those two again, Marlon and Nikki. They're just brilliant. So thank you both of them for coming on. Uh, what were your learning points, Lisa? Yeah.
0: Um- yeah, it was it was fascinating to be able to speak to them again. Um, and they are so passionate, like I said last time, about diabetes, and that came through in the management um, bits as well. For me, it was that holistic approach at the beginning, the fact that it's not just about um, looking at their sugar levels. Um, there's a lot of things that we, I think we cover probably blood pressure and cholesterol and cardiovascular risk quite well. Um, but it was interesting to hear about the microalbumin level not being done so well, um, and um, particularly mental health. Um, in the current era, um, I'm approaching that. And the resource that Nikki mentioned um, sounds like that will be really useful um, around being able to approach these conversations with diabetic patients. So yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, the module on
1: Diabetes UK will link to as well. Yeah, if I had a magic wand or a fairy godmother, I think she said, I'd, yeah. I'd magic up a psychologist to deal with the amount of um, dealing with the diagnosis and the mental health elements that can um, impact on looking after your diabetes well. Um, it is a really powerful message and I'm glad that we we talked about it and um, the other bits that I thought were really useful was the plate, the dietary stuff so mm. looking at the plate dividing it into thirds there's yep. no such thing as a bad food it's just about portion control of things and um, I thought that was fabulous actually thinking about the impact of diet and exercise and I think I guess the the pilot being about the individualized approach to it and about behavioral change and
0: change management yeah and i think that's really important rather than just giving people a, a low calorie diet for however long was it 12 weeks and i um, hoping that they'll continue it it's good that they are doing other bits that are wrap around that yeah. to hopefully sustain the change but it was the stats were quite fascinating about it i will be really interested to watch that longer term to see kind of how sustained that actually is um, in terms of reversing people's diabetes or at least getting them kind of down on the medication burden um, it is really really fascinating. Absolutely
1: I was really impressed with Marlon being able to um, talk us through the the main side effects and the main reasons you would or wouldn't prescribe certain diabetic medications so Well, first of all, how how to sift through, so looking at the Q risk, but then also thinking about the heart and then thinking about your BMI. Yeah. Um, And, yeah, the ones for weight loss, the ones that are good for weight loss and the ones that aren't so good and, yeah, the particular elements there and oh yeah the dka for the euglyce- euglycemic dka for your glt 2 inhibitors as well yeah like it was yeah he yeah, was
0: very good at condensing that down um yeah. to give <laughs> vital information um, and there's lots of great resources as well that we'll link to that can provide um more comprehensive information as well
1: so we have we have some news in terms of the podcast um, that people might be interested in with lisa's news would you like to give it
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes so um, i will hopefully be going off to have a little baby um soon uh, we've done quite a lot of recording in advance um so that there hasn't been a big break in episodes but um we're at the stage where there probably will be a little bit of a gap now in terms of release um, just um so that both me Sarah can have a little bit of a break before we come back. Um, it should hopefully be um, only about a month and then you'll get some more episodes coming through again. Um, but it's just to let you know that if you don't see any for a couple of weeks we've not gone we will be back.
1: <laughs> yeah that'll be interesting to see <laughs> what you're like after <laughs> afterwards will that affect?'ll <laughs> we'll let <the> listeners decide. <laughs> yeah so wishing her all the best and uh, looking forward to um, meeting up with you again afterwards of course, Lisa. But yeah. Till next time. I'm Primary Care Knowledge Boost This podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of GP Excellence, Wigan Borough CCG. Greater Manchester Training Hub and the GP Fellowship Programme, as well as Greater Manchester Health and Social
0: Care Partnership. Just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public.
1: They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2022. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always
0: check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before you make any treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.